The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 19, beginning at 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of this sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, would you let us see these words in a new way, although they are familiar? Would you let us see this moment of history for the epic matter that it represents? May we come here treading on holy ground, sure that this is one of the greatest moments in the history of the world. Teach us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that never in all history did one word say so much as did the sixth cry of Jesus from his cross. In the Greek New Testament, it is one word. It is three in English, but one in Greek. Tetelestai, it is finished. John was close enough to the cross as the only disciple there to understand the word and report it. The other Gospels say at this point he gave a loud shout. Maybe people weren't quite sure what he said. But John knew it was a word that said, it has been completed, done. Most of you know that several years ago I was privileged to have a book accepted for publication by a prestigious publisher. And I wanted, not because of who the publisher was, but I wanted to do my best job on it, and I wanted to dedicate myself as I went to work to a high standard of writing. The first draft of the book wasn't the hard part because it existed as sermons that had to be redrafted and added to and cut and reworked in many ways. That was what it was all about. Rewriting is the key of writing if you don't know. I don't know how they did it before word processors. Many months beyond that, I was working from four in the morning till seven, revising, cutting, adding a word, changing a word, putting something there that hadn't been there, taking something out. I would say every page of the book was redone extensively at least 15 times. And I came up on the publisher's deadline, fearing that date, working like crazy toward that date, and realized no matter how many times I rewrote, if they gave me another year, 
I'd be on the 37th revision of some page, and I still wouldn't be satisfied. I couldn't write a book that was 100% finished to my own satisfaction. But speaking in John 4.34, Jesus had affirmed before this, my food, the, the thing that drives my life, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And indeed, Jesus left no unfinished tasks and no loose ends with his life. Martin Luther commented on that. Here's what he said. In Jesus' one word, finished, Luther said, I comfort myself very much, for I confess that all my own finishings of anything are miserable and piecemeal. But in what the Savior did at Calvary, I see the only completeness that this world contains. Just for a moment, keep your mind straight about the order of events at the cross. The seven words we call them are gathered from all the Gospels. You don't have all seven in any one Gospel, but they make a composite whole. Last time we looked at Jesus speaking to his mother Mary and his disciple John and asking them to care for and uh, behold one another, and we read that John took her into his home. But from behold your son and behold your mother, next came, as we try to put the sequence together, those three terrible hours of darkness. Some will say that, that look to their tables of history and say, guess there was an eclipse then. Well, an eclipse won't explain it because there's no eclipse that lasts more than a matter of minutes. This was three hours. The darkness was unnatural. It was supernatural caused by God. We don't know how extensive it was, but for those in the midst of it at that scene at Calvary, it was very dark, very frightening. And we know that in that time, Jesus tasted the hell of his father's abandonment because it was in that time that he cried that terrible cry that Matthew and Mark report, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then apparently near the end of the darkness, he groaned another cry, I thirst. That's here in our text. Then it is finished. And then another gospel reports that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How can any words be more solemn? He bowed his head, John says, and gave up his spirit. You and I die because we cannot help it. Jesus Christ died because he willed to. He had earlier said in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. Nothing was forced here. He was still the one enacting all things. Many say his word finished acts as if it were an exclamation mark punctuating all the words Jesus said in his entire ministry as he seemingly dismissed himself from living in a body of flesh on this earth, knowing it was the time to do so. Daniel, the prophet, long before had predicted, Daniel 9.24, 
that he would, quote, finish transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. He had done it. He performed all, paid all, did all, and it was time to go. Time to go to his Father. Now, I've preached on John 19.30, I think, five or six times in this pastorate. So it might seem like an old text with tired things to say. I sought to approach it in a, a slightly different slant so that I would myself be forced to examine it carefully again. I'm asking you today to think of the word finished being addressed in three different directions here today. Jesus spoke this word to God the Father. He spoke it to the entire Christian church from his day to ours. And he speaks it to each of us personally. First of all, finished is a word spoken directly to the Father, bringing glory to the Son. You know, finishing something is really something we know very little about. I search hard to find examples. I thought of one, and I'm sure it's imperfect, but way back in high school days, I had a friend who was two years ahead of his class. He belonged in the sophomore class when he was a senior. I think it was the second time that we took the SAT test that I happened to sit next to him. I was 17, he was 15. And uh, I was bad in math, and he was very good. And that doesn't imply I sat next to him to try to benefit from his test. <laughs> the SAT, I think it's still the same way. I haven't taken it lately. But in my day, the test was specifically designed to be longer than almost anyone would be able to finish. And somebody who could finish it completely, that was exceptional. Well, my friend went to work with his pencil, and I went to work with mine. And I wasn't paying too much attention to him until two-thirds, just a little more than half the way, through the allotted time for the test, my friend put his pencil down, closed the booklet of his paper, got up, handed the paper into the test monitor, and walked out of the room. I thought, he cannot have finished that. Not only did he finish, but the, top, the perfect score is 800. He got an 800 and went to MIT. And I did not become a doctor because of math. So, most of us, if we on our deathbeds tried to review and say, what have, I, what have I really finished ever in my life, would probably think about many, many things that were fragmentary efforts or lost opportunities. But Jesus was the one who has already said this very night before, well, actually, there would be the night before he was on the cross. As he prayed there in John 17, he said, Father... I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. I want to stop for a moment over this word, I thirst, that's here. Most who comment on this say they see it here as his commentary on the final stroke of fulfilled prophecy, but also as a statement on his bodily suffering. The Old Testament prophets, we know, said many things would happen at the cross. Psalm 22, I suggested last week, is a fertile 
place for that, Isaiah 53 and others, not just in general, but very specific things that happened at the cross. And this thirst is one, probably alluding to Psalm 22:15, which sees him as the suffering servant who, it says there, has his tongue sticking to his jaws. A little while ago, about two, three months ago, I was taking a medication that caused dryness of mouth. I'm not taking it anymore because at the time I found I needed not one glass of water in the pulpit but two, and I could have used a third sometimes. And some usher heard me say this in the first sermon because I have two glasses of water here, which is not a usual thing. So they were helping me, I guess. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Extreme thirst is is certainly one of the manifestations of great suffering. And we're being reminded here, yes, Jesus was suffering spiritually. That mountain of our sin, the burden of sin, was crashing on him and being absorbed into his sinless being. But he was also suffering in a physical body. Now, there could be people who would say, well, he was the Son of God. He was divine. We know that. So, how could he really suffer? I mean, after all, you know, angels don't suffer. Can the Son of God actually suffer? Don't ever pursue that thought very far. Jesus suffered as any man. We don't know exactly how they fastened those nails. The experts debate a little bit whether the typical pictures that show the nail in the palm could be right because a nail would probably tear out of your palm. There's, there's not the bone structure there to hold it, but through the wrist it would hold. That's where it's thought the nail went. But regardless, try to imagine the nerves, the pain sensors of your hand and your wrist after hours of that. Just try You can't. You can't do it. It's never happened to you. Jesus was a severely wounded man with nerves screaming. Every breath he had to push himself upward to to get leverage for his lung to somehow get air in. He was suffering, saying, I thirst was a tiny indicator of that grave suffering. I think of the parable Jesus told in Luke 16, 24 of the rich man and Lazarus, remember him? This guy who lived in luxury and negligence towards a, a suffering beggar at his gate and death reversed their roles and the beggar who was a man of faith is in heaven and the rich man's in hell. And what does it say? He wanted the beggar to come from heaven and put one drop of cool water on his tongue thirst in the Bible is a symbol of hell. The scorched tongue that pants to be satisfied and cannot find it. No phantom thirsts. Only men thirst. And here's the Son of God, the one who participated in the making of the Atlantic Ocean and the Mississippi River, the one who said, He, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I am living water. Come to me and drink. And he's saying, I thirst. He was pitifully begging for somebody to come with a a styrofoam cup or a canteen and, and give him a swallow. And what did they do? 
It wasn't just that they weren't equipped with water. They had no intention of being equipped with water. The fact that the wine in the jug was sour, spoiled vinegar-like acid was not an accident. It was there to increase the suffering. And they gave him the sponge. After all, you, you can't handle a cup when your hands are pinioned. So they put a sponge in his face to suck on, and he partook of it. They were mocking his suffering by that sour wine, but they gave it to him. Do you ever think about the fact that many of the ways we live our lives, even as Christian believers, are like shoving a sponge full of sour wine in the face of our Savior and saying, here, here's how your disciple lives Let your teeth be set on edge by this, Savior. Well, in the midst of all this hellish horror, Jesus was finishing the task. It was the greatest day of atonement that there ever was. It ended all the feasts and all the sacrifices that Israel had ever brought. The high priest would never have to appear again with a slain lamb in his arm next year after this year. Hebrews 9 says he appeared once for all at the end of the ages. This was the end of the ages as far as God's salvation is concerned. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, and he was offered once for the sins of many people and will come again to bring salvation to all those waiting for him. You see, we can view it in the light of the resurrection, of course. And, you know, we, we, can, we couldn't stand it if we didn't know how this ended. We'd be like John and Mary and the others standing there and saying, it's all over. This, this terrible thing is, is the end. We know better, don't we? We know the date we're going to celebrate Easter, Lord willing, in the month of March. We know what comes in chapter 20. They didn't. So we can know that Christ's shout of finished is also a victory shout to the Father. Father, the work is done. I've accomplished it. Now the great thing is soon to be unveiled. And you can almost hear the shackles breaking open of the prisoners he set free and the castle prison walls falling down. Finished is a word spoken by Christ to his Father that brings glory to the Son. Well, secondly, and briefly, I tell you this one. This word from Jesus, finished, is also a word spoken broadly to the whole church of Christ about our secure position in him. You see, when any gospel believer clings to the security of what was done there at the cross, we are resting in something that cannot fail to hold us up and support us. We need not fear that we're going to possibly come to that day of judgment when we shall give an answer to God for who and what we are, and maybe all that we thought was our confidence would prove to be false. Maybe some evidence would be snuck into the court. Aha, I saw Rogers when he didn't think anybody was looking. I present this evidence against him that is his undoing. Won't happen. Cannot happen. Satan will not be admitted there as a surprise witness against me. Romans 8.34 challenges that 
whole idea when it says, who is he that condemns? Why, it's Jesus Christ who died and is risen and is at the right hand of God and indeed now is interceding for us. Who will separate me from the love of Christ? You know the answer. No one possibly can, even though we are guilty of many things. Accusations can be brought. All those secret thoughts, men and women, that you wouldn't even necessarily share with your spouse. Satan's second death that the Scripture talks about in Revelation 20. It's a fearsome thing. Did you ever think maybe somehow I'm not as secure as I think I am and I will be on the wrong list at the end and I'll be thrown into the lake of fire that Revelation talks about? Cannot happen if you are purchased by Christ as His finished work. We as a congregation... I've recently been rejoicing. We didn't throw a party exactly, but we've certainly been rejoicing in the fact of finishing a mortgage on this property. By the way, I, I had one thought of something that we could do. We could have gone out and bought a brand new garbage can, one that didn't smell, and put it in here and got a mortgage, a fake one, of course, and lit a match and dropped it in the garbage can. But you know what would happen? Smoke detectors. Sprinkler system, we'd defeat our purpose. But we are rejoicing that we don't have a building mortgage because we can spend the money we were spending on that, on ministry and missions. But you know, that applies to us as well because there's no mortgage on God's living church. I don't mean the one with a brick floor and white pews. I mean you. There's no mortgage on the people of God. Revelation 5.9 tells a wonderful scene. It's one of my favorite. It is, I think, my favorite chapter of Revelation where Christ, the Lamb at the throne, is being exalted and songs are being raised to Him and the song goes up from 10,000 throats, Worthy are you, for you were slain. And then it says, With your blood you purchased men for God. Jesus liquidated the mortgage. Nobody owns His people except Himself. We call him Lord because he's the owner. Nobody, nobody has a lien upon the people of God. Once he purchased you, there can be no other mortgage. He's the only Lord, and he receives all the praise for that. But thirdly, this morning, when Jesus cried out, finished, it was a personal word, a word that calls every believer to further work for Christ that will not be in vain. We have further work to do. Now, don't confuse the work we're called to do with the work done for you. Very important that you not confuse those two things. The work done for you is finished, but you have work to do. 2 Peter 1.3 has a great declaration to Christians Peter writes, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You've got work to do, and you need this as your prime piece of equipment, the Word of God. You need the Holy Spirit. God has given you what you need. You have the church. You have other Christian companions. You have prayer. The things you need to do the work God calls His people to are before you. They're in your hands. 
and he's standing behind your work as well. Philippians 1.6, I am confident, Paul says, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it to completion. God doesn't have half-baked Christians. Not in the end. We may be half-baked along the way somewhere, but not in the end. Well, somebody says, what what do you think is left for me to do? Well, the first work you have to do is believe. What is the work God requires? Believe in the truth of Christ crucified. But after that, you're called to worship, to witness, to pray, to serve others, to sacrifice your time, to forgive, to give of your means. You do your work in the Christian church, not in order to earn or satisfy or build up your credits and bring yourself salvation, but rather as a consequence of having the finished work. Think of the conversion of Saul, who became Paul in Acts chapter 9. Here he was on the Damascus Road trotting on down, relishing the fact that he'd get to kill some Christians. And he was eager to do it, and he knew how to do it. And he certainly wasn't thinking about, maybe today I'll become a Christian. That was absolutely the very last thing in Saul's mind. It wasn't on Saul's mind at all. When a vision from heaven came, I am Jesus whom you persecute. He fell down. He was insensate. He was blind for a few days. God's work completely, right, in that conversion. Saul didn't will it. He didn't ask for it. God converted him. But right after that, A man was sent to go to Saul, and he wasn't so sure about doing that, and he was told this, Saul will be a chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles. I saved him. The salvation is finished. Now he's got work to do. Paul couldn't save anyone, nor can we, but we're called to God's kingdom work, which he chooses to do through us, through our weakness. We're his tools here on earth, his hands and his feet and his voice. And he's got work that he calls us to do, and he gives us the means with which to do it. I came across a quote I had never seen until recently, and I checked it out on the Internet. It's supposedly verified, much as the Internet can verify anything. History says when Buddha died, and Buddhism, if you don't know, is a religion that tells you many things to do and do and do and do. When Buddha died, his last words were, strive on without ceasing, perfectly expressing his philosophy. When Jesus died, what was his last word? I have finished it for you. 180 degrees difference. You see, religion and Christianity is not technically a religion because a religion is about do and do and do and do. Buddhism is a religion. The Christian gospel says the finished work is done for you. Rest in it and go forward in its strength. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. I always put a caveat on movie recommendations. This is not a movie for small children. It has many rough things in it. But I know many of you have seen it. This World War II epic is based on the true story of a Midwestern family who had four sons all in the service. 
And somewhere shortly before or right around the time of D-Day in 1944, three of those four sons were killed. And the generals who handle the messages on these things put the fact together that one family was getting three notifications. And they also realized that there was a fourth son, Private James Ryan, who was somewhere in Normandy, France. Nobody knew where. And they thought, wouldn't it be awful if we had one more to come for this family? We must prevent that. So you probably know the story. There was a squad appointed to go and find Private Ryan and get him out of there before his life was also lost. Well, Captain Miller was the captain of this squad, and these men were sort of grousing about the fact that they were putting their lives in danger to go get this one guy out, and it didn't seem to be a sensible errand for them. And indeed, the sad thing is that most of the rescue squad died in the endeavor. I don't exactly remember how many out of the squad, but most of them, I think, the majority of them were killed. In a dramatic moment in a firefight at the end, here's Private Ryan, still uninjured, Captain Miller has been shot and is mortally wounded, and he's going to die. And practically with his dying words, he grabs Ryan's jacket, pulls him over to him, gets in his face, and says, You earned this. Earn it. In other words, you've caused the death of my man. See that you live as a man who earns something. Private Ryan made it home, as you may know, and at the film's conclusion, the scene is that it's the present day, well, I guess 10 years ago, but he's an elderly grandfather and he's visiting the graves of his fallen comrades in Normandy. He finds the grave of Captain Miller, who told him that years and years ago. He stands there crying, sobbing, and he says, I've tried I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope it was enough. I hope I've earned what you did for me. And he turns to his wife who comes up to him and says, Tell me, am I a good man? And it leaves you with that plaintive question. His wife says, Of course you are, but what else is she going to say? That movie scene is memorable to me because it is tragically opposite of my standing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one-man rescue squad coming behind enemy lines, suffering the fire, taking the death, taking my sin, taking my penalty, and he certainly has not told me, earn it. Instead, his dying decree said to me, mission accomplished, and I did it for you. It's done. That word finished, you see, requires all the other words in the language to describe the enormity of it. And even then it remains incomprehensible that he did it. But far from being the last gasped word of a worn-out life, this final word of Jesus Christ is the cry of a conqueror. And if you will put all your trust in everything that that one word means you will never have cause to regret it. I promise. Thanks be to God. Our Father, thank you for Jesus. 
Amazing what he did. We cannot comprehend it. If we were to talk for hours and hours and hours, we wouldn't touch the depths of what he was doing there and what he finished. Thank you for such a Savior. May it be that anyone within hearing my voice today would see this and partake of it in faith and reliance and gain the marvelous gift of eternal life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.